Well, welcome back. Uh, we are in our study of the book of Romans. Uh, welcome back to lesson 13. And today is on the benefits of justification by grace through faith, part one. We're in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And I'd like to read verses 1 to 11 to get us started there on the top of your page one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This passage, when I read it, always reminds me of the word in Hebrew, dayenu. Let's close in prayer. No. <laughs> you know the, do any of you know the Dayenu song that goes die, along? Dayenu, die, Dayenu. Die, it sounds like, and bingo was his name. Oh, right. <laughs> exactly. And die, Dayenu, you sing it at the Passover, right? Okay. And so uh, my sister-in-law, Shelly, as I've mentioned many times, is a uh, Messianic Jew. And so we have Passover many times together and sang Dayenu and other songs. But Dianu's song is this. It would have been enough. That word signals this. That to the Jewish mindset it was this. If God had just taken us out of Egypt and brought us out of there, it would have been enough. But if he had taken us out of there and then safely took us across the Red Sea away from our enemies, Dianu, it would have been enough. But if he had just taken us across the sea and then given us his law, it would have been enough. But if he had taken us out of Egypt and then saved us and then given us his law and then brought us into the promised land, it would have been enough. But if he had brought us into the promised land and then he divided us into the tribes and then he gave us this glorious victory over our enemies, it would have been enough. And it goes on through the Dianu motif of that song, of the benefits that come, it would have been enough just to be saved. But God added so much more. Every time I read this passage, verses 1 to 11, I think Dianu. Because Paul uses the language of Dianu, although in Greek, 
four or five times when he said, and so much more, and even more than that. And on top of that, he did this. This is such an awesome passage. It would have been enough if he just saved us. But on top of that, he gave us peace with him. On top of that, he gave us access to him. And so this chart below those words is simply the benefits of justification just in those 11 verses on a dianu meter. And if you look, I've, I've, in, in red, I've given four big picture. God has given us in Christ a new relationship with him. Two things at this passage in verses 1 and 2. We have peace with God, and we have access to God. It would have not been enough if he saved us and then just said, okay, now you can be in heaven. But he's given us peace with him and access constantly to him. A relationship that's new. Secondly, he gave us new purpose in this passage. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. That is, our lives now have a purpose for which we did not have prior to this. And then secondly, we exalt in our trials, which God has purposed. Like in Romans 8, all things work together for good that love God and are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, etc. All things have a purpose. So we now have in God, everything in our life has purpose, which it did not have 20 minutes before we were saved. And then thirdly, we have a new assurance from God in this passage. Three things. We have the witness of the indwelling spirit that we are loved by God. He has spread the love of God in our hearts. Secondly, we have the witness of the death of Christ that we are loved by God. What God has done for us in this passage is say, I'm not just going to save you, but I'm going to constantly assure you that you're saved. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who keeps telling you, you are loved, you are loved, you are loved. And then external to your internal meter is the death of Christ as an objective reality, that the ultimate payment is the Son of God's death for our sins. And so that is the thing we can continue to look to as assurance. He did that for me. He must love me. And then the Spirit convinces you. See what he did for you? He spreads it abroad in our hearts. It's a double witness. And then thirdly, we have the promise of freedom from the wrath of God to come. What God is saying is this. Christ died for you. I love you. The Spirit tells you, I love you. And then there's a future for us in which there is no wrath. I love you. That's beautiful. And then fourthly, we have a new worship of God. We exult in God because of all that Christ has done for us. Uh, those are part next week. But this Greek word for exalt is the same word as boast. So remember, we're not to boast. Abraham could not boast before God because we don't work our own salvation. But in this passage, we're told three times we get to boast. And who do we boast in? Let your boasting be in the Lord, right? Three times in here you said, okay, you can boast now. You can go, he did it. It was amazing. So, Dianu, guys, God has given us much for which to be thankful. But we have so much that's been given to us in Christ as benefits of justification. Just one more point in the top of page one before I go to page two. Paul starts, of course, in this passage with the word, therefore. Right? We all know in Bible study, if the word therefore is there, you have to find out what it's there for. Right? Okay? So Paul, the last words of chapter 4 that we just studied for about 12,000 years uh, is justification. For our justification. That's what it ends with in chapter 4. 
And so Paul now just moves, because the dividing of the chapters is not from the Lord, it's from man. And so he had just said, Christ died for our justification. Therefore, Paul says. The implications of that is, it's a past tense maneuver. Having therefore been justified, finished, past tense. We sometimes get confused by the word salvation. And at what stage of that? The whole big word that Paul is talking about in Romans 3 to 5 is salvation. But salvation, of course, as you know, has three aspects to it. And that's the important thing here that Paul is getting to with the word therefore. The first one of those is past. The second is present. The third is future aspects of salvation. Some things have already occurred and are one-time events, and some things are ongoing within your salvation, and some things are yet future within our salvation. Right? Being saved, can I partly be saved? No, depending on what you're talking about. If we're talking about justification, being made right with God eternally, to which you cannot lose that, that's a one-time event that's passed for every believer. Right? It's something that's past. Uh, in the present, it's sanctification. And of course, the future is glorification. And then, in the future, future is vacation. <laughs> <laughs> so in the past, what is already completed for the Christian today? I have a list of a zillion things, but here's what I want to ask you. Okay, you're going to help me. Things which are true of every Christian, which were completed as soon as you get your justification. Now, if you give me one that's yet future or, or there, I'll point it out. But one at a time, just kind of, yeah, do it. You receive the Holy Spirit. Okay. The indwelling Spirit. What else? Yeah, Russ. You were made alive. Made alive. That's right. We were we were regenerated. That's already happened. Yeah. And reconciled. We're reconciled. Redeemed. Beautiful. Redeemed. Redeemed. How I love to reconcile. These are words that that Paul has already mentioned. Beautiful, right? Given gifts. You were given the spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit at the time of your salvation. Care. Adopted. Beautiful. Adopted. You don't get adopted twice into God's family, right? He adopted you, then later he's like, eh, that's really... There's more. How much more? Let's dianu this. Things that are already true of you today, if you're a Christian, they happen at the moment of your justification. Forgiven. Woo, sealed. Sealed to the day of redemption. Looking forward. Beautiful. Yeah. New creation. Old things are passed away. We are behold, we are new, made new in Christ. Okay, we passed from death unto life. Okay, death to life. Man, I'm going to have to have a side bracket here. <laughs> That's right. Yeah? <laughs> it's, a, it's the Gregathon. No, go ahead, Greg. We have peace with God. That's That's... Chapter 5 of Romans now is going to add a bunch of things that are true. We have peace with God. We're going to look at it in a second. We have access to God. What else? What became true? These are good. These are good. Yeah. 
We're hidden with God in Christ. I'm going to just put hidden in Christ. Man, that whole thing that you're taking us to, there's like a zillion of those in Christ, right? Especially in the book of Ephesians. All those benefits in Christ. And Paul, in, this, in these verses, saying through Christ. Very similar, but not quite the same thing. That all this has come to us through the work of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, which is Paul's big point, chapter 6 to 8, that we're in Christ, he's going to talk about, so in Christ, this is true of you. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Anything else that comes to mind? Someone had mentioned forgiven. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, We're no longer servants. We're friends. Oh, wow. We have a, a change of status from servant to friend. Great. Yes. You said that we're no longer slaves of sin, we're slaves of God. Of righteousness, right? That's Romans 6. We're going to get to this. Any more, real quick? Yeah. Okay. We're heirs. We're heirs. Heirs in Christ. Yeah. Dude, Dianu, dude. <laughs> Did you guys stop? <laughs> you know, Pastor, when I think of Dianu, yeah. I think of grace giving us things we don't deserve. That's right. It's, you have, not only you have the grace of God passed, now this one is particularly forward too, and that is you get more grace, okay? But the grace of God saves you. All right. Dianu. It would have been enough if we had just gotten this package. If God had sent us out of there going, good contract, right? You didn't do anything and you get all this. Would you like that today? Sure. But in sanctification, you get the ongoing relational parts of this that work out. We get the filling of the Spirit, of course. We get the fruit of the Spirit. We get the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's ministries to us, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. All of these things begin not just actively started, but deepened. And cause us to grow. Because when we think of it, it's like sometimes we think, I got all this, now I better be a good person. But that's also a promised birthright. The Holy Spirit in you will cause those fruits to occur as a believer. So beautiful. And then glorification. Uh, can't even draw the throne, man. It's just a thing, right? And we're just going to be there on our knees, happy as all craziness. Also, as I get older, I appreciate more and more that we're going to get a new body. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of us don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, honey. <laughs> if you're visiting today, that's my wife. Right? <laughs> just, just, just making sure that's happening, right? <laughs> And in all seriousness, I this morning, you know, got dressed, going down the stairs in our condo, our condo, our townhouse. And I'm walking down the stairs, and I said out loud, "Getting old ain't for cowards." <laughs> okay, so that's page one, Dianu. Let's go to page two then, and look at Lord willing here. Look at the first two benefits that have been given to us according to Paul in chapter five, verses one and two. The first thing is a new relationship with God, and there's two parts of that Paul has given us in verses 1 and 2, and that is we have peace with God, and we have access to God. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, period, past tense, perfect tense in Greek, completed action, ongoing benefits, never to be repeated. You have been justified. We have peace with God presently through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, as I've mentioned, justification is a legal matter, not a relational matter. Justification is not, so now you and God are buddies because buddyhood can go up and down. But rather, justification is a legal matter in which that case is closed in God's courtroom because the Son of God has been your mediator. And so it has a past, present, and future implications that we said past Having been justified, we currently have peace and we exult in the hope of the glory of God, the hope future that God will get glory through our salvation. Why do we have to have this point that we are at peace with God? Because we used to be at war with God. We have to remember that as a Christian today. Some of us in this room have been Christians longer than 40 years, 50 or 60 or 70 years, um, 100 years. (laughs) <laughs> 130 years you know things like that people in this room <laughs> but we can forget that we were enemies with God if you could imagine for a moment a month before you were a believer and just think of your life then the demonstration that you're an enemy A. we were enemies with God by our very own nature and the way we acted Romans 8-7 Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's where we were, right? We were enemies by our very nature and our attitude. We did not please God. We did not submit to God. And we were hostile towards God, says the scriptures. But our own actions prove that. It wasn't just like we had attitudes, but our own actions. We were enemies with God. That's why it's so beautiful that God made peace with us, but nothing because of anything he had done wrong. B, by our own actions, we refused to submit to God. We rebelled against his rightful claims as king, lord, and ruler. Let me stop there. The image of being at peace with God is not two warring armies of equal strength who signed a peace treaty. Okay? Because we could get that image. Well, we're good with God now because we kind of worked this out. Right? But rather the image of scripture is he's the king and we're in rebellion. And we are fighting against the king who is righteous and good and perfect. Has never sinned. And his realm is, the universe is his realm. And we have joined Satan in a rebellion against the rightful king of the universe. And in that picture we have now decided that we will not do his will whatsoever. And then some might say, yeah, but I was a pretty good person. (laughs) (laughs) But we used to run with his enemies. James 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? If you run with the enemies of the king, you're an enemy of the crown. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. How do I know that I was an enemy of God? By my attitude, by my lack of submission to him, by my own lifestyle, 
and that I love the things of the enemies of God. I love the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I sought those things out, and God was not in my picture of my life as an 18-year-old. I thought there was a God. I thought I was good with God. I didn't realize I was at war with God. Why? Because I was so entrenched in the rebel clan that uh, I had no picture of that in my life. So our being brought to peace with God is only beautifully pictured when we realize that we were at war with God. But even worse than that for the sinner, for the person who says, I don't, I'm not going to believe in Jesus. It's not that they're only at war with God. God is at war with them. It's, it's not a neutral thing. The king is not like, well, stuff happens in my realm. <laughs> I can't do much about that. He's at constant war. God is angry all the time with the rebels. And so what scripture tells us is this in these three passages. We were under the wrath of God, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We know that in Romans 1 and 2, and especially if you were not here for that part of the series, just to refresh you, that what God is telling us is everyone in the world is without excuse for not coming to God, and God's wrath is upon them. Romans chapter 2. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgments of God. Now, some of us have forgotten again, and, and here's the beauty of Ephesians 2. It's easy to look back and say, yep, those bad people outside of here, they're under the wrath of God. But it's Ephesians 2 that refreshes us as a believer to say, you know, that, that used to be you, right? <laughs> that used to be you. And that's Ephesians 2 says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Again, just again, if you're new to the class, there are a few here today that uh, there is counseling available. If you are new to our class, it's kind of hard to get over this. But the reality is that just as a refresher, no one is saved because they were of that group of people who were special or they knew God better or they liked God better or they sinned less but rather we were all by nature children of wrath well the beautiful picture that is for right here's why we're here number four Christ has come as the mediator Christ is the only mediator between God and man first Timothy 2 for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men the man Christ Jesus um, you know what I was surprised by? Uh, a few weeks ago, I asked in the class, uh, how many of you had grown up Roman Catholic? And I was blown away at that time that so few of you had compared to what I thought would have taken place. Most churches that I have been to in this region, including my home church in Fairfax County, would have had a very high former Roman Catholic kind of backdrop and so, while I'd be interested in hearing all about it at this point, but I'm interested in the fact that not as many in here grew up Roman Catholic, even though this region, and we talked about Maryland, has so many Catholics within this region. So once again, just quickly, because this is going to matter today how we proceed, but how many of you grew up Roman Catholic? Okay. Briefly. 
<laughs> use you did not inhale. Okay. I got it. So. Okay. A few of us, right? Maybe 15 to 20 people in the room. This point of mediator. Pastor Gabe mentioned this in his sermon a few weeks ago, but this whole idea that Christ is the only mediator. Those of us who didn't grow up Roman Catholic, or I did, those who didn't and are in a Protestant church, in fact, a Bible-believing Protestant church, feel like, yeah, he's the only mediator, we get that. Those of us who grew up Roman Catholic looked at the Pope as the mediator. He was the mediator. He was in the place of Christ, right? And so coming from that, not only is it cultic, but that reality is you have to get scripture to understand there's no system or person, right, who's in that place. But a lot of us grew up in that where the Pope is not just some dude. I mean, he's the guy mediating your salvation on earth. He's the guy who's got the keys and he's got all the stuff. And we're, some of you are like, what? You know, what was really fun about six or eight weeks ago when I mentioned that at first time was the reaction in here. Really, every group is different. And there was this like, what? Because you didn't grow up in the cult. I think if you grew up Mormon and tried to explain it to us, it would sound different, right? But being a Catholic is a cult. It's not just a religion. And so we'll get to that. All right, page three. Christ has satisfied the wrath of God and made peace. That's the beauty. This Colossians passage, dude, if I was going to get a tattoo, <laughs> some of you will never be back to my class after this, okay? Colossians 1, 19 to 22. This wraps up all the things we're saying. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. The fullness of what? God the Son would take on human flesh and fully be God and fully be man. Reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formally alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through his death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So it kind of weaves together three of our main points here. We were enemies. He has made peace through his blood and reconciled us to the Father. What is this idea of reconciliation? As we've talked about in chapter 3 and 4, it is that it, that is the relational side of this breakdown. Uh, the formal side is justification. The relational side with God is reconciliation. We're now able to relate to God, and God is having a relationship with us not simply a law relationship. Justification, we're on good legal grounds. Reconciliation, we're friends. Um, I would hope this isn't true, but because we're all humans and we sin, uh, I'm sure that it is true at some point in your life. That idea of having a friend and then the relationship gets broken. And then... It can be weeks or years before it gets re-established and sometimes never does. I would think that when I said that, there's possibility somebody comes to mind. Uh, so let me just say this on the reconciliation note. Uh, if it's all possible for you to reconcile with another believer of a broken relationship that has anything to do with you, do it. Go to them and, you know, ask for forgiveness for whatever sin might have been your part in all of that. If it's not possible... Uh, they passed on, then you have to leave that with the Lord. 
but if there's believers, I'm starting there, that in your life that you're not reconciled to, uh, it's much better. Your a conscience is a good pillow. Uh, and a good conscience is a good pillow and encourage you that. I recently had this happen, and that's why I want to talk about it for a minute uh, in reconciliation. I had a dear friend that I worked with in ministry, and uh, some decisions were made in the ministry, and uh, he decided to kind of break fellowship with me. And I have a very short list in the universe of people. I try to keep a short account so that I know if someone's offended with me, I try to go to them if I know that I'm offended or they're offended. And so I try to live my entire life that way, as Carly knows. But this particular friend and I kind of broke friendship, and he said, you know, I don't think I'd be able to work with you in the future. And here's some reasons why. And uh, I, you know, was uh, wounded by it and also tried to work things out. And then eventually he and I talked a couple of times, but we didn't really get anywhere. And it was one of those where you're like, well, is this one of those Apostle Paul and, and uh, Barnabas or whatever where they decide to just go different ways because they see ministry differently? Or is there something deeper here? And I had never really had that in ministry. Uh, you know, I've had a, a really good run of guys I've worked with who've become very dear friends. And so we didn't really talk for about six months. And I know that may seem short in some cases. Uh, but then God in his goodness allowed us... Uh, some realities. And as I was reading scripture one day, I just realized, I don't think I'm wrong in this situation. You know that one. <laughs> right? You know where this is going, right? Yeah. I don't think I'm wrong, so why should I have to go? Kind of feeling, you know, I thank thee God that I'm not like these other men. And, uh, but God in his goodness through scripture and the work of the spirit convinced me that, hey, you do your part, you see what happens. And God, God was good. I, call, I texted him and I said, look, I don't know exactly what happened between us, but whatever I can do to bring reconciliation and whatever I can do uh, to make this work, I'm willing to do it. And so he got back to me within about nine seconds, literally. <laughs> he was like, I'm in. And we met, and uh, in God's goodness had a great conversation, and subsequently our friendship is been restored to a, to a level. And it takes time to kind of rework some of those things. But I'm saying all that to say, don't, don't think of this as some kind of obscure idea. Reconciliation is something in our own lives. Family members, workmates, friends, we have to work at reconciliation. And God has been very kind to us in bringing reconciliation to us that he has broken down this wall and he's taken care of the problem of peace. He has destroyed the enmity between us and him through the death of his son. He poured out his wrath on his son. And in doing so, if we're in Christ, we're now at peace with God, legally speaking. And he's reconciling himself or our, ourselves to him. So what is this kind of peace then, number five, that God gives? Uh, it's not a feeling of peace, right? But rather the cessation of hostilities. I know that you're mature Christians, many of you in the room, but I want to refresh your mind on a very simple point. Peace with God is different than peace of God, right? So peace with God, peace of God. The peace of God is something God gives us, Philippians chapter 4. When we pray, when we trust in him, he gives us peace about our circumstances. It's an internal sense. It's an internal feeling. It's an internal calmness that comes over life's troubles. But this is not what is being talked about here. This is a cessation of hostilities. It's a legal matter. The war is over. But feelings of joy 
and peacefulness should come when you know God isn't angry with me anymore. If you're a Christian this morning and you, uh, well, you're here, so you woke up. Uh, I was going to say, if you woke up this morning and you're like, I'm here. If you're alive today and you're a Christian, God is not angry with you. You say, yeah, but I've been behave, misbehaving. You've got to think it through. Is God angry with you? If you're like, I think he's angry with me today. It's about fellowship. I understand the distinction. We're going to talk about that in Romans 6 to 8. But God's anger was poured out on his son. God is not angry with you. You're not under God's wrath. He's not waiting for you to crawl up on broken glass and beg him to forgive you in life. The son of God was punished so that we did not have to do that. He loves you. He cares about you. And he has saved you from his wrath. And God is given peace to us against his wrath. We can't lose it. And peace with God should lead to the peace of God as a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace is a fruit of the Spirit. So God gives internal peace, those things that tell us, I'm good, God's good with me, and my circumstances will lead to his greater glory. But in John 16, 33, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. That's the verse that tells us that our life right now makes sense. Jesus says, in me you'll have peace. But the world around you is going to be crazy village. He gave you both, right? Before he left the planet. He didn't say, my peace will keep you three feet above the ground. And you will just float above all the nonsense. And everything will just make sense. No. In me, you can have peace while you're in the midst of tribulation. So the idea of making peace with God, just a simple illustration I've heard, and that is, you know, most stories that preachers use, at least in the past, they just made them up. <laughs> okay, never mind. So, um, <laughs> you know, a woman once in Scotland, right, Morag, you know, whatever, and then they go and tell a story, but they come from illustration books, and when you look them up, you're like, eh, I don't know if that really happened. So I'm not going to say this one happened, it's an illustration I read, and that is of a lady who was on her deathbed, professing Christian. The pastor came to her and asked, have you made peace with God? She said, no. Are you going to make peace with God? You're about to meet him. No. And then she said, because Jesus has already made peace with God for me. And so that's the beauty of that. If that really happened, she was really clever. If not, it's a good illustration. A modern day parable. Thank you, Anne. So in this little blocked in area, I simply say this. If you are still trying to be justified by law through works, you are still at war with God. You're not getting up the pole, right? This is true of anyone who's religious in the name of Jesus to be religious. If you are trying to be justified by law through works, you are still at war with God and God is still at war with you. All right. Second part of this under a new relationship with God is we have access to God. Oh! 
It's Dayenu. If we were just at peace and hostility had ceased and he just sent us back home and said, look, we're not going to be friends. Let's not make any illusions here. We're not friends. But I forgive your debt. You see what I mean? We're, we're, okay, we're good here. My son paid your debt, but don't be in my presence. I don't need to see you anymore. That's how some people think of forgiving someone. I forgave you. I'm not going to kill you. <laughs> There's more to that. <laughs> There's a little more to that. God not only made peace with us, but he brought us into his presence and is treating us with relationship. So I want to walk through that. Through whom also, through whom? Christ. Also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Really simply, uh, King James has the word access. I think that's a really good word. That's the word I'm using here. But the point is this Greek word just simply means that. To bring someone into a presence, to introduce them, to take them from one place into another of privilege, to bring them from a place of poverty into another place of privilege. It's to take someone somewhere that's beneficial to them that they didn't have access to. Christ is the one who brings us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Years ago, I worked for a ministry called Promise Keepers. And uh, I like to tell this story. And uh, while I was working for them, um, I was a national event manager. And so when we did events around the United States at stadiums, I got a badge, right? And in the badge, it basically gave me access. Have I already told this story in here? Of course I didn't. <laughs> so I got this badge, and it gave me access to anywhere in the stadium, at every stadium I worked in. I was the first person into a stadium before our team got there. I was the last person to leave after a conference. And so during those 35 conferences I worked in, uh, basically I got this really cool thing. And so I had this access badge. I'd fly into a place. I'd go anywhere in the stadium. Well, we were in Atlanta, Georgia on this one particular event, and we were going to do an event in the stadium or whatever it was. And adjacent to that was uh, a center where there was a Christian concert going to do and a seminar. And in this Christian concert, uh, a band, now this is really dating myself, Okay, a band called DC Talk. All right, okay, some of you know who they are, right? Round, round, okay. So DC Talk was going to do a, conf a concert next door to where we were setting up for our conference. And my boss and his wife and his daughter came, and she was a teenage daughter, and her favorite band was DC Talk. And she had their posters up, she had whatever, you know, she loved DC Talk. And I was like, okay, cool. And I was talking to them, and she was like, oh, they're the greatest. They're amazing. I'm like, do you want to meet them? She's like, bonk. You know, like, what? I was like, no, seriously, you want to meet them? She's like, yes. Okay, I was bluffing. <laughs> I had a badge. I had no idea how to meet DC Talk. But we just started walking around into the next conference center, and them in tow. And in God's goodness, in his surprising goodness, a door opens up and the three members of DC Talk come sashaying wow. out. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> so 
I kind of left them right standing here, and I went up to them, and Michael, who's in the band, he's cool, so I approached him first. I said, here's the deal. And I explained it really quickly. Total fan. We're with Promise Keepers. You know we're next. Oh, I love Promise Keepers. Okay, cool. Here's what we're doing. Help me out. And they said, we got you, man. And so I left that scene with them giving her a hug, saying, hey, you're part of a thing. You want a ticket to the concert, whatever. I walked away, and she could not speak. She was like, how is that? Access. Jesus brought us to the Father. He is the only one that can get us into his presence. If you think in the Old Testament, the story of Esther, right? Esther and the king. You cannot approach in that ancient culture a king just walk into his presence without being invited. The penalty was death. You, you cannot be in God's presence in his kingdom, in his heaven, without being invited to be so. Uh, I'll just steal my thunder from the next page, and that is in the Matthew account in chapter 22, that you have the story of the party, the banquet thrown for the king's son and his marriage. And you end up with people at the party who aren't supposed to be there. Now, that parable is to explain to us that there are people who are going to act or be religious and think they're getting in, but their garments have not been exchanged. They have not been regenerated and saved. But they're there in their religion thinking, we're just fine at the banquet. And the picture of that is access to the banquet. What happens if you try to enter in through works is really the picture. Those who were redeemed had fresh garments given to them. He'd gone out in the byways and invited them to come and just gave them a robe. They didn't have to do anything. That's salvation. But those who put on their own robe and tried to do religion and came to the party, they're going to get thrown out of the party. And so all these pictures of access, it's a privilege. It's dianium. So let's further our, our look. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Can it be clearer that we weren't getting in? <laughs> you come to the special event, and then I'm sorry, you're separated from this person, you're excluded, you're a stranger to this, you have no hope of getting in. So you're saying there's a chance. Right? Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments and contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And from him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. I love it when scripture makes my outline make sense. It's all there. Next page. We have peace with God. We have access through Christ. Why? This is the theological why, his priesthood. I love the book of Hebrews. 
I had the privilege of teaching through it about four or five years ago. That was the first time. And the encouragement of the priesthood of Christ. two keys to the priesthood of Christ in the book of Hebrews, of course, is that his sacrifice as the priest, he brought sacrifices himself, not the sacrifices of animals, but he himself was the sacrifice, and therefore he intercedes for us, and that we have a great high priest, we're told in Hebrews chapter 10, who can get us in access-wise to the Father. And the whole picture of the book of Hebrews is picturing towards the Old Testament priesthood and the sacrificial system. And the whole message of Hebrews is, Christ is better. He's better. We don't have an old covenant. We have a better covenant. Sorry. We have a better covenant. And it's through his priesthood. So just a few verses here at the top of page four. And then we'll talk about access in terms of its implications. Through his priesthood, if he, uh, if he, I'm sorry, Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, back to our passage that we're in, Romans 5, right? It tells us that therefore we have peace with God, having been justified. And we have access into this grace in which we now stand. Uh, that passage is telling us this. You were saved by grace, but now you're living in Grace Village. You have access now and you stand within this grace. That is, God operates with you on the principle of grace and not on the principle of law. And in that grace throne that we come to, we can get additional grace. What is grace? It is not simply God's unmerited favor to us, but it is the power, the desire and the power to do his will. God gives more grace to the humble. Uh, we do things by grace. Paul says that I worked harder than any other apostle by the grace of God. Can you imagine Paul when he gets to heaven meeting Peter and saying, I worked harder than you, dude. <laughs> but he said, I did so by the grace of God. And then in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's the point of all this access? <clears throat> It's a practical implication. It's, Paul's now gotten to, how's that working? If we have access to God and his throne, it's through prayer is the primary way. Right? We're not physically there yet, but we can walk in any time into God's throne room. Just want to refresh your mind of the access point of the Old Testament. If you're a Gentile, there was a court of the Gentiles. But you weren't going into the Holy of Holies. If you're a woman who was Jewish, you got a court, the court of the women. 
you weren't going into the Holy of Holies. None of the priests were going into the Holy of Holies except for one, right, on the day of Yom Kippur, that the high priest got to go in one time a year, and he was able to go in, and they would tie a rope to him, says history, that they would tie a rope to his leg in case God killed him while he was in there. And it had happened. And so they could drag out the body because they couldn't go in to get him because God would kill you in there. That's what access looked like before April 6, 33 AD. Before Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again. Before that weekend in April 33 AD, there the veil was up. There was no access to God except for through that sacrificial system. And so none of us, let's pretend for the moment we were all Jewish and we lived in Israel at that time. None of us were ever going into his presence. And God, through the blood of Christ, through the veil of his life and the renting of the veil, right, as a symbol, the actual veil of the temple, opened the way of access so that we can be in God's presence. Now, the difficulty, and I don't want to preach too long on this because Paul will address these questions in chapter 6 to 8, but in a fundamental basic way, prayer is a beautiful thing, but if we don't use it, it doesn't avail very much. Illustration number two out of a book in which don't think it really happened. That's my theme for the day. Uh, but I should say this beforehand. I know that at least one other couple, well, wait, the the Sirquines, you just came off a cruise, right? We did. Where did you go? Norway. Whoa. Okay. That's going to make my cruise look stupid, but yeah, that sounds good. Um, <clears throat> that's like, that's like we went to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and you, you <laughs> right? So, and, then, and okay, similar, yeah. Uh, I know at least one other couple in here is going on a cruise in a week or so, and Carla and I are going on a cruise uh, within the next month. And some of you are looking at me going, we might be paying that guy too much. All right? <laughs> well, we already saved the money. It's in my little envelope in the system, all right? But the point is, we're going on a cruise, and we're excited about it. We, we like cruises. We've only been on a few, but we find them relaxing. So this illustration is about a cruise that I read, and I thought it was interesting. And there was a man, apparently, who took a transatlantic uh, cruise from, uh, I think, England to New York. And the price of the cruise, to him, seemed excessive. Uh, I'm looking around, I see other cruisers in here. Anyway, it seemed excessive. He'd never been on a cruise. He paid a lot of money for the cruise. And so what he reasoned in his mind was this. I'm not going down to pay for that food because I just paid a zillion dollars to get on the boat. So he just brought a little snack bag for the whole week. He had to sneak it onto the cruise. And the entire week, he'd go in his room and just eat his little snacks. The last day of the cruise, he's talking to one of the stewards. He goes, just wondering. How much did it cost to eat down there? What, what was the meal cost? And they're like, it's all included, sir. Oh. <laughs> you get on a cruise boat, all the meals are included. And all the entertainment and all the things, right? It's all part of the package deal. Now, as silly as that illustration is, maybe it happened, I don't know. But the reality is, that's what it's like to have access to God and not use it. You're on a cruise ship in which everything is offered to us on the board that was up there. Access in his presence. In his presence is joy evermore. Uh, the throne of grace come in time of need. If we don't spend time with God, we're on a cruise ship in which we're eating snacks and the buffet is waiting. 
So a few other pieces here on page four, and we're closing in on this. I want to mention again, and you're like, I didn't grow up Roman Catholic, but there are many who are in this area. My point C under number two, I've already mentioned the other two. Sacerdotalism and sacramentalism. Don't do it. (laughs) By the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had functionally replaced Christ as the mediator between God and man. Through the inventions of a priestly caste, what's called sacerdotalism, and an elaborate merit system of sacramentalism, Rome perpetuated the lie that the church alone could interpret scripture and offer salvation, sola, ecclesia, the church alone. By the time of the Reformation, that was the teaching. If you weren't in the Roman Catholic Church, you could not be saved. And it was because of those two things. We're the only legitimate priesthood. They believed that, like the Old Testament priests in Israel you had to come through, the priests of the Roman Catholic Church were your only entry point to get into God's presence. And then secondly, in order to do that, you had to go through the system of the seven sacraments and meet the seven dwarfs. This was very complicated, very complicated. (laughs) I lost some of you. Okay. So what what is sacerdotalism? Rome taught that people cannot approach God on their own, but must come through a priest. Only through the church, its ordained priesthood, and Mary, does God confer blessings on his people. Sacramentalism. Rome taught that people cannot be saved directly by the grace of God, but rather people receive grace incrementally through the seven sacraments. The grace received is meritorious and adds up for points towards salvation, as we talked about a few weeks ago. What is sola ecclesia? That is, Rome taught that people cannot interpret Scripture nor be saved except through the Roman Catholic Church. So, well, that's all a long time ago, the Reformation. Not according to the Baltimore Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. The page that we're about to look like shows, shows how the merits of Christ are distributed through Mary and the priests via the sacraments. Next page. This is a picture from the Baltimore Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. The sacraments and prayer. There's Jesus' blood flowing into the cup held by the priest. You're going to need to go through the priest to get the full Benny. But then look where the blood goes. Through Mary's hands. And Mary's hands are the mediated point in which the blood benefits of the death of the Son of God come to the normal people who apparently live around a globe. <laughs> it says, the sacraments give power to life. They are actions of Christ on our souls. They are channels or streams flowing from the open side of Christ through Mary's hands to us. In Roman Catholicism, when you talk about, well, the mediator is Christ, now you better be saying it's Christ and Mary. Mary is part of the quadrinity. <laughs> She's basically the fourth person of the Trinity. She never sinned. She mediates between God and man. You can pray to her and she'll take care of you. Mary's not just someone to be idolized or encouraged. Uh, so in order to get the bennies from the death of Christ, 
unlike what Paul says, you have peace with God and access to God personally. In Roman Catholicism, and I would say in any cult, there are rules of engagement with God that you have to come through the cult. You can't just, get, you can't just go to heaven by being an adjunct Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> you have to go through the system, dude. Did any of you grow up Jehovah's Witness? Okay. Nobody should join it because they, only, they say only 144,000 people are going to be saved. And they claim that they have millions of people in their organization. When they come to your door, just say, dude, it's full. I mean, why should I join your cult? Apparently, you just want me to give money so the 144,000 can have a good day. But I, I mean, I'm already excluded by virtue of your teaching, you know. So anyway. All right, the last block here on page five at the bottom, I'm simply reiterating what I've been saying that about access. In sharp contrast to Rome, the reformers pointed Christians back to the biblical doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Hear me out. We're not priests of ourselves between God and man. Christ is the only mediator between God and man. But he established a priesthood in which we can pray for others and intercede for other people, but we cannot save them. And we can have access to God, like the priest on the day of Yom Kippur, except for everybody who's a priest can go into the Holy of Holies in God's new priesthood. And so each of us has access to the Holy of Holies. It's a new priesthood. It's not a Aaronic priesthood. It's a Melchizedekian priesthood. It's a Christ priesthood. And so in that, this doctrine asserts that people can be saved directly by the grace of God through faith in Christ and can approach God in worship and service without the agency of a human priesthood or ecclesiastical system. To which it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The conference illustration at the bottom was one I already gave, and I did not. Guys, it's pretty basic. God is not angry with you. If you're in Christ, you're at peace with God, and God is at peace with you. If you have access to him today, at this very moment, go in his presence. Let's pray.